Paul, thank you so much. Uh, you're very gracious and very kind. So looking at Paul, Warren, and myself, and I thought three men who have no hair on their head, uh, <laughs> all clean shaven. So great to be here again. I say again because um, a little over a year ago, I had an opportunity to uh, be present with the team before the launch and to look at you now, amazing. Can you just with me celebrate God for what he's done? Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, I'm impressed by Paul and Taylor and um, have been for a long time. Uh, it's been an honor to um, be neighbors. We at once lived in Northern Virginia and we could walk to one another's homes. And um, our children were much younger then. The, the baby's now 18, so uh, they're, they're older now. But to just have watched um, the progression of God's grace in their life is extraordinary. And uh, thank you for playing drums back in the day when <laughs> we needed you. And, uh, and Taylor's an amazing, gifted woman, writer, mom, wife, just uh, extraordinary. So thank you for having me and glad Warren could come along. Uh, as he mentioned, um, my wife and I have five. Uh, one son, he's our oldest, firstborn, and then four girls after him. And um, uh, I enjoy probably being um, a husband and, and dad more than anything. And uh, hopefully they'll be able to come with me, at least my wife next time. Taylor's like, where's Marianne? I'm like, yeah, I know. She'll, she'll come next time. We'll celebrate 28 years of marriage uh, this November. And uh, so we're excited about that. We're excited. And, and um, Paul, make sure I know what time I should stop. Just give me a, an end time and then 1140. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to honor that. And, and um yeah, so when my son moved out, left us with four girls, and so my home was renamed the girls' dorm and um, the sea of estrogen. Uh, I love it. I know more about stilettos and um, other kinds of things and why a young lady might have more than one toothbrush. Um, you have to ask somebody afterwards what that means. You know, just got to take care of those edges. I mean, I'm just... Keep it right there. People look at me like, what is he talking about? So all of you who are laughing, would you explain to those who are looking like, what on earth? And those of you who are upset that I kind of outed you, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, but, I, but I love that. So I'll grab my son and say, let's just go do something together. I just need a little more testosterone. I've been living in this camp for a while. And, uh, and it's, it's really good. So I know you've been in a series called Thankfulness. And... Uh, I thought it was powerful last week's message about David and worship, um, really, really tremendous. So I thought I'd connect in some way with it um, and, and hopefully stay in the spirit of, of where we've been um, this season. So um, there is a, a there's something uh, that is written in the New Testament. It's found in Romans in chapter 8, verse 28. And um, it's something that is familiar to many. And um, I've read it for a long time. But in October of last year, I was convicted because I recognized I don't believe fully what it says. Um, you may, and so if you do, great. But for me, it is an ongoing work in, in progress. So it's found in Romans 8:28, And it's right there on the screen. It says, and we know. That's important. Um, Paul, in writing this letter, says there's something we know. And I think that's really important because what follows 
makes sense only if we know what it is he knows. And he says, we know that God causes all things, all things, not some things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So when we look at that, a few things to highlight. God is both relational and missional. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. The loving God is the relational aspect of God. And to those who are called according to his purpose. Purpose speaks to the missional aspect of God. God is both relational and missional. Some of us in this room, our orientation is probably more relational than missional and vice versa. How many of you, like me, are more relationally oriented than you are missionally oriented? There are a few of us, right? How many are more missionally oriented than you are uh, relational. Both are good, and it can be points of tension because you're trying to get the other person to uh, agree with you. But it's like a walk. You step relationally, you step missionally, and it becomes this thing called how we do life. And so both are good. But he says this, though, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, last October, I read this convicted. What do I mean convicted? Challenged in my way of thinking. Uh, of what I will now call my previous concept of what this means. I was challenged by God. He said, you believe that some things work together for good, but not all things. And just nod if you are in agreement with, yeah, that might be my position as well, or previously, or who knows where you may be in this. But I believe that some things, not all things. In other words, there are these things that work together for good, but not those things. Give some examples. These things a promotion on the job, acceptance into the university of your choice. Uh, the woman you proposed to said, yes, I can easily see how all these things work together for good as someone who loves God. Anybody agree with that? But he said all things, not just these things. So that would mean these things and those things. Those things could be a non-acceptance letter to the university or a demotion or perhaps you've been actually fired from your job. We usually don't have the same response with those things as we do these things, even though the word says all things work together for good. Are you with me? Those things, a, a miscarriage, and you were believing, God, that we were going to conceive and give birth to a child. And it's painful. Uh, so how is it that all things work together for good to those who love God? How many would say, now that you mention it, I realize I believe some things work together for good. I'm really not convinced at all things. Right. I, and it's OK to be honest in church, in a school. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's good to be that uh, we've been honest in church in movie theaters and hotels. And I, like, don't sit here and lie in a school. Right. So the, the, it, all things. And I'm, when I say convicted, I'm talking about wrestling with God. How on earth does this work for good? I can't see it. I can't feel it. And we sang a song, even when I can't see it, when I can't feel it, he's still working. How is this then working for good? Yeah. I need help there. Now, to add to that, Paul then says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 about what to do with regard to all things. He says, in everything, give Thanks. And this whole series is about thankfulness, thanksgiving. He says in everything. He doesn't say in this or that, these or those, but in everything, give thanks. I don't know about you. I'm still learning to give thanks in everything. 
I give thanks in some things, but not everything. Think about my childhood with my brother and some things that happened between us. You know, that sibling things where you have some days where you get along and it's great and other days where it's not great. I don't know that I would give God thanks in everything in that moment. So he says, why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So I want to walk together through a few things that may help us come to a better place of being able to give thanks in all things. And understanding that all things really do work together for good. And, and what does that look like? So Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. Luke chapter 22, verses 28, 22, 28 through 30. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Really important. Jesus is speaking to those who are believers, their followers, they're his disciples. And he says, you are those who have stood with me in my trials. And he mentions three things, trials, tables, and thrones. Trials speaks to what Pastor Paul said earlier, inconvenience. Thank you for you 77 volunteers who have inconvenienced yourself. It may not be a trial, but it certainly is an inconvenience to come and do what you might otherwise find better to do for yourself, but instead you've chosen the kingdom over yourself, and so you're here. I applaud you for that. Your reward is great, and you have no idea the benefit and value being done in terms of the advancement of the kingdom by you just showing up and serving. God speaks to that. It's an amazing thing. Warren and I were riding together, and we were talking about how the Bible says if you give a prophet a a, a drink of water, you receive a prophet's reward. Really? What is that? What is it that on the heart of God that in even giving a glass of water to somebody, God says that's worthy of taking note and rewarding you? I want you to know your service is having impact beyond these walls. And so he talks about sharing in his trials, then his table. What is his table? If trials are inconvenience, then tables must be intimacy. I love the fact that Jesus invites us to sit at the table with him. And people say, what do you do for a living? I say, I wait tables. That's what I do. I, wait, I figured it out. I wait tables. I wash dishes. I literally stand over my sink, not as much as my family would like. But from time to time, I wash dishes. But as far as I'm concerned, I wash dishes all the time because the perspective I have of the role that God's given me is that of a servant. And so the first table I get to wait is my wife and my five kids and my granddaughter. The table after that is Grace Covenant Church in Washington, D.C., a table after that is Every Nation. Another table I serve and wait is uh, the University of Maryland. And, and there are a few other tables I serve. But literally, when you see yourself as a, a servant, you walk up to the table. You make sure everybody's glass has fresh water. You make sure their plate is served with hot food. You know when you go to a restaurant and you're well taken care of, you're like, man, that servant did a great job. Right? They don't come and sit down like, hey, can I try some of that? That, that, would, not, <laughs> that, that would not be it. And so... When you go through life looking at yourself as a servant, then it's just a question of figuring out, Lord, what tables have you given to me? And how do I honor you in such a way um, in terms of my interaction with those who are at my table that I'm not seated with but standing and serving? There are other tables I eat from, but there are tables I don't eat from. There are tables I serve, and you need to know the difference and have both. So there's tables. And then the thrones. That speaks of his authority and intimacy. And it's interesting I think we tend to gravitate toward the intimacy with Christ being at his table, and we also gravitate toward even maybe having some influence to throw. But when it comes to trials, uh, not really down with that. <clears throat> There's a book I read called Ministry in the Image of God, 
And the point of it was the ministry of Jesus to the Father through the Holy Spirit for the sake of the church and the world. That it's really not our ministry, it's his ministry. It's the ministry of Jesus, it's to the Father, and it's for the sake of the church and the world. So when we do ministry, it's never our ministry, it's always his ministry, and we're simply entering into the ministry of Jesus, and our ministry is ultimately to the Father. This is why you see Jesus engaged in ministry, and though there could be 35 people who need to be healed, he only touched two. Why? Because he wasn't driven primarily by the need in front of him, but by his service and his heart toward the Father. Whoever you're healing today, that's who I'm on point with. And that's why you never get burned out, because he's not driven by something external. He's driven by the Holy Spirit internally living him. That's a hard lesson to learn. Um, so, so this is all part of this. And um, my whole point is in bringing all that out is to bring you to this moment, that our trials, which are very personal, how many of you have experienced some trials in your life that have been fairly difficult? Yeah. Has it ever occurred to you, I know it hasn't to me often, that my trials really, uh, though they're personal, they're, they're not merely just my trials, that perhaps God is privileging me to share in his trials. And if I have the perspective that the trials I'm going through are not just my own, but they're his, so that I might know fellowship with him in a deeper way, then that changes perspective and moves the needle toward me being able to give thanks in everything, not for it, but in it, because he's with me. Amen. Amen. So here's an example. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, get ready. Here it comes. This one's for me and you. Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. And the Lord said to Simon, 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 indeed Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Wow. Like, wow. Right? Why wow? First of all, who wants their name mentioned in the same breath as Satan? <laughs> at no time should your name and his name appear in the same sentence for any reason at all. But here's Jesus speaking to him, say, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, before he says anything else, if you're Simon, you're thinking, I'm good, I'm good, I'm with you. He's demanded permission. You got me, I'm with you. I gave up everything to follow you. You told him, hey, you can't have him, right? No. I pray for you. Why is this a matter of prayer? Who needs to pray about this? <laughs> you, you, you're... You're, you're the Messiah. Remember that confession I said? You're the son of the living God. Listen, the oceans obey you. I, all you have to do is say to Satan, step back. So I don't understand why you're praying. <laughs> I've prayed for you. Well, what have you prayed? That your faith would not fail. Lord, I'm still waiting to hear the part about permission denied. <laughs> we're, we're, I'll keep listening. I pray for you that your faith would not fail. What? No, no, Lord. See, this is what it means to really be in relationship with Jesus. There are moments in, in relationship with him, and I love what Pastor Paul said in May of last year. He said, we are inextricably tied. And it didn't start with us. It started with him. Once you become inextricably tied to Christ and then to one another, you find yourself in places that if you had known before, 
You might have said, mm, not sure if I want to go with you. Not sure. Planted a church 20 years ago, and at one point I'm like, mm, you didn't tell me all this. <laughs> wow. I pray for you that your faith would not fail. That my faith would not fail. Come on, Jesus, really? Yeah. And that when you return, don't miss this part. And when you return, sometimes we can only hear the part to us that's so overwhelming that we mute the other part. And when you return, he can't even imagine a return because he can't imagine being, the permission being given. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. If I'm Simon Peter, like, he, I don't know how he reacted, but Donnell Jones would just lose it. No! One of those Charlie Brown Uggs when he kicks the ball and Lucy pulls it. No, that's not fair. It's not fair. I gave up my business. I could be, dude, what, come on, what benefit does it serve to give him permission to sift me like wheat? And remember, part of the story here is that Simon is affirming his allegiance to Jesus, said, I will never, ever deny you, even if everybody else falls away. I got your back. If necessary, I'll even die with you. I love the progression in his life because if we go to the beginning, when he has this confession that Jesus is Lord, and he's like, I'm going to follow him. Jesus says, now that you know who I am, let me tell you who you are. And here's the mission. That's the relational part. Here's the missional part. I'm actually going to suffer. Yeah, I'm going to be given over to the leaders. They're going to, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And then three days later, I'll be run. And Peter says, no, ain't nobody dying. He's moved from no one's dying to now I'm willing to die. Wow. Let's not miss the progression. But there's still more. You never arrive. Now he's saying, I'll die with you. He says, Peter, will you? You're going to deny me three times. No, I won't. No, I won't. I will not. You ever, you ever find yourself in a place like that? What doesn't he understand in this moment that we need to understand, which leads back to how we give thanks? Um, I didn't understand this. When God is permitting, and I, I use that word, italics, bold, underline. When God is permitting the enemy access to Simon, at the very moment, he is privileging him to share in his trials. It's simultaneous. The permitting of Satan is simultaneously the privileging of Simon to share in the trials. It's a privilege. See, when you share, I'm just going to go, look, where I grew up, like, we, there's a phrase we use. It's two words. When you go through something that somebody else goes through and you both have a shared experience, you go, feel me? <laughs> you can't say feel me unless you've walked through it. Jesus has given you the opportunity to, so he can say, feel me? These are my trials. We don't have time this morning, but if we were to go back, when Jesus uh, uh, was baptized, what a moment. Clouds breaking open, sky open, voice heard from heaven, spirit of God coming down, descending, resting on him. This is my son whom I love, who I'm well pleased. I mean, what a great day. And then right after that, you know what happened? The spirit of the Lord drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Like right after your baptism, now go into the wilderness and be tempted. And don't eat anything or drink anything for 40 days. Like right after your baptism. That's like, it's your birthday, blow out the candles. All right, now you're going to go sit in the, in the dungeon. Like, that <laughs> doesn't follow. But it says afterwards that he returned to Galilee in the spirit of the Lord. 
He came back in power. See, Jesus knows what happens when you go through the point of temptation and how you have to rely on the Holy Spirit and you get filled up and you come back stronger than you were. And he's saying, you need to share in my trial. He's just inviting them into where he's already been living. So, Simon, it's not just your trial. It's my trial. And I'm letting you share with me because I'm shouldering most of the weight. You with me? It makes me look at my trials different. So... This is really what is important for us to get. What trial are you going through where it feels like the enemy has been given permission, but you need to see the full equation? You're also being privileged to share in the trials of Jesus. And it produces such an intimacy that cannot be wrought any other way. It cannot be wrought any other way. And when you come back, you strengthen. You know, Peter did return. In the moment that he returns... It's post-resurrection. Um, They've gone back to fishing. And John 21, you can read it, but he walks up to him and he says, Peter, do you love me? Relational. I need to restore you. Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Can you imagine how he felt? Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Missional. Restoring the relational and the missional. I tried to think through what Peter must have processed. So I'll, I'll share this and then... We'll, we'll move on from there. I believe Peter was absolutely convinced that he was going to die with Christ. It's the scene where <clears throat> they're in the garden, the place they'd been a lot of times, Gethsemane. Jesus had said earlier that night, one of you is going to betray me. They're looking around like, who, who, who? Judas knew it was him, but he didn't say anything. And Jesus gave him a chance to speak up without exposing him. He's always trying to win you. He could have called him out, washed his feet. No, I, I, when's the last time you washed the feet of somebody who betrayed you? Washed their car, sent them a Starbucks card in the mail. That night, here comes Judas. He walks up to Jesus. He greets him, kisses on the cheek. You know what Jesus calls him? Friend. Because he was speaking out of his heart toward him, not Judas's heart toward him. Friend, you betrayed me with a kiss. Can you imagine Simon, Thomas, all of them looking like, dude, you? When you walk together for people for three years and then something relational goes down like that, that's not easy. And Peter's already said, I'm going to die with you. Now we got a traitor in the camp. And so they walk up and they say, we got to find him. And Judas said, the one I kissed, that's him. Like, oh, that, we got him now. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth says, I am he. I don't understand this fully, but somewhere in that struggle of praying God's will over his own will, where he submitted, it says an angel appeared to him, strengthening him. And so even though he was initially overwhelmed and grieved with sorrow to the point of death, he's now so strengthened that power is flowing out of him, and he has to restrain it, to restrict it just to the mission of getting to the cross. Because when he says, I am he, the whole mob was knocked back and fell to the ground. That's power. Simon standing beside him like, yeah, we're on now. It's about to go down. About to go fix it. Go. I told you, Judas, you messed up, dude. This is when we set up the kingdom. Yeah, Jesus, say I'm here again. Knock them down. They're getting back up. <laughs> He's just letting them know, I got power. I'm giving myself up. You're not taking my life. I'm laying it down. Then when they come to arrest him, I think Peter, it gets violated. And this is for us who walk close with Jesus. There's a violation of his expectation. When they come again, say it again, say I'm he. 
Jesus puts his arms out to surrender. And Simon's going, no, what are you doing? Pulls out the sword, slow motion, pushes Jesus to the side. I'll die for you like a fisherman. <laughs> Cuts off a guy's ear. You know he wasn't a Roman centurion. Roman centurion would have took the guy's head off this way. Peter's going like this, like a fisherman. So used to throwing a net for all his life. Now he's got a sword. You know, it's, if you've done stuff for 20 years, you try to switch up, you're not going to be that good at it. Dude ducks, cuts his ear. Jesus grabs Simon, put your sword away. And now Peter's about to be mesmerized. Jesus bends down, heals the guy's ear. If I'm that guy, I'm like, okay, uh, yeah, hearing restored. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm not arresting him. Mm-mm, no, all good. Nah, I, I don't know. Mm-mm, done. Just mesmerized. Simon's like, what are you doing? I said I would die with you. I know, but you and I don't mean the same thing. I didn't mean die as in try to preserve yourself. I mean die to your will and fulfill God's will, and that you haven't learned yet. You're still fighting to save yourself and me. And I'm saying that the true heart of God is not to save himself, which is why on the cross they said, if he were God, why don't he come down and save himself? Because if he did that, he couldn't save us, and his heart was to save us, not himself. And he wants to teach us to live that way. How do I not save Donnell, save Marianne? Choose my wife over me. Choose my kids. Choose everybody over me as an act of choosing God. How many struggle living that way? That self-preserving thing just comes out of you. All right. Let's move on so you can have something to give thanks for. (laughs) I feel you walking down and you're saying, where are we going? You pastor, where are we going? Say, good news is coming. Peter gets restored. Then he says, wait, the Holy Spirit's coming. And when the Holy Spirit comes, they're filled with power. Peter stands up on that day that we call Pentecost, and he says, these men, let me tell you, it's only early in the morning, and we are speaking the good news about Christ, the very one who you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. Now, this same guy who denied Jesus three times in the face of a little girl is boldly willing to lay down his life, knowing the risk of preaching in open air, 3,000 plus people, but he's full of the Spirit of God. And people come to Christ that day, and it's an amazing thing. And what does he do? He's He's strengthening his brothers, meaning the nation of Israel repenting, getting baptized, and being filled with the Holy Spirit and coming to Christ. This is the fulfillment of when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. Pentecost, he started strengthening them. He did it before then, but that was really just one public demonstration. Isn't that amazing? So I want to give you some help. How do you do this? How do you do this? Let's make it practical. Number one, you got to be able to see him in the trial. Can you see Jesus in the trial? Uh, uh, here's what Asaph said, Psalm 73, 28. But as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. Let me tell you just, uh, now I'm going to go with personal trial because when you walk through personal trials, God uses those trials to bring you to the place of realizing it's not just personal, it's me sharing in his trials. And as I share in his trials, then I can now be what he wants me to be, not just for myself, but for my family, for victory, for Charlottesville, for the nation. But you got to win something in your personal trials. So here's just one example. Uh, At eight years of age, I stood over a coffin. Uh, my dad was laying in it, or at least his remains. 
And my grandmother stood at my side and she put her arm around me. She said, you're the man of the house because I'm the oldest of two boys. When my grandmother said that, it was not something I received as encouragement. It's something I received with great fear. Um, my parents separated um, when they were very young. Um, I was no more than three. They divorced when I was five. Dad died when I was eight. And the memories in terms of the number of times I saw him, I can count on one hand, maybe a couple of fingers of the second hand. So when she said, you're the man of the house, I'm like, I got no clue. And so most of my life, I told a story about what it's like to grow up without a dad, the insecurities that come from that, uh, walking into a room full of men and feeling like you're less than everyone in the room, um, drawing my identity from what I do rather than from who I, ought, who I am, since I'm not secure in who I am. And that creates a whole way of living. And <clears throat> so I had all these excuses for why I couldn't become whatever I was supposed to become as a man, because dad wasn't there. As you mature, God helps you not assign blame to others for where you are in life. And that happened probably in my early 20s where I forgave dad. And God did some amazing healing in my heart. But a few years ago, he helped me say, I need to take you back to that instance. When you stood over the coffin and you saw your dad lying there and everyone in the room crying and how sad it was, the one person you failed to see in the room was me. And because you don't see me in your trials, but always think of trials as when God is absent, you don't view me as you ought to. Have you ever had a moment where you go, where was God? He was there in it before you got there. He was in it before you got there. When Joseph in the Bible is sitting in prison, Jesus was there before Joseph got there. And so you start to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, yeah, I was at the funeral, Donnell, and I was providing comfort. When your grandmother stood, and I didn't know this, before my dad died, and the circumstances of his death were rather tragic, but before my dad died, he, um, he had given his heart to Jesus, and I didn't know that. He had been involved in a drug lifestyle, and he was being drawn back into it, and he stood his ground at the loss of his own life. I never knew that about him. I found that out years later. And so what he would have loved to have been able to transfer to me as his son, he didn't have the opportunity, but God wanted to make sure there was at least some connection. He had my grandmother say, you're now the man of the house. And something about what happened at the end of my dad's life would somehow translate into what would be in my life for years to come. But I never made that connection because I couldn't even see that Jesus was in the middle of the trial. Because most of the trials from age eight on, I'm always thinking, how could a loving God, and where's God, and if God's so loving, why would he like it? And he's like, I'm right here in the middle of the trial. And it's really not about you. It's really my trial. And I am privileging you to have closeness and nearness with me. Asaph said it, with, he said it this way. The nearness of my God is my good. He didn't say that the thing you were going through or the place you found yourself was good, but that God's nearness to you in it is what was good. And when you get to the place where God's nearness is your good, then you don't need the thing to be as good because the one who is good is with you in the thing. Yeah. 
When you get to the place where the place isn't as good, but the one who's with you in that place is good, I don't need the place to be good as long as the one who is good is with me in that place. So now I can begin to give thanks because I start to feel you that this is what it's like to walk with you in trials. And that mitigates against the Western mindset in which I have a constitutional right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And anything that's unhappy can't be God. But if that's true, then I have to do away with the Bible because it contradicts everybody who walks with him. He never promised happiness. He said, you're going to go through, but when you return, you're going to be a bad brother. (laughs) There's going to be substance that comes out of you, authenticity. It won't be theory or something you read in a book while drinking your favorite mocha. And think, oh, let me tell you what I read today. It was so good. God touched me. No, that's just the study. When he touches you is when you're in the trial to see if you remember what you studied. And I too often forget the lesson when I'm in the trial. What is going on? Remember your devotion a month ago? Yeah, 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 I remember. But it was a good devotion. I was really encouraged. (laughs) Use it now. Without the coffee, use it now. I want to be a real Christian. I want to look at Jesus and at least once be able to go, I feel you. Thank you for putting me in this yoke with you. It's the safest place there is. Losing my life for you. Lord, I give thanks for the trial. I give thank you. I thank you. I give thanks to you in the trial. Did I want the trial? No, you didn't even want it. You said, Father, if possible, let it pass for me. But if not, your will, not mine. And I thank you, God, that you actually, in the trial, allow us to become people who have a choice between our will and your will. And the real temptation isn't what we're going through. It's whether we will save our life or lose it for your sake, like you did for us. I'm so glad you didn't save yourself on the cross because that was the only provision by which we could be saved. The cost you paid is immeasurable for the salvation of my soul. There's no other way that the gospel could come to me, could come to everybody in this room and be offered as forgiveness of sins, change of heart, And what do we have to do? Believe in the one who did the work. You did the work. And anything less than that is unacceptable. No work I do gets me into the kingdom of God, except the work of believing. Now, once in the kingdom, I work, but I'm not working for salvation. I'm working from it. And there may be men and women in this place who today is a starting point for you. You're here at Victoryville. You're here in Charlottesville. But you're also right now here in the presence of the Lord. And I know that when you're in his presence, there's always an opportunity to respond. For some, it might be the start of a relationship, the surrender of your life to him, the confession of Jesus as Lord of your life. And if there's some conviction you're experiencing, meaning a change in your thought and your heart, like, Lord, I need to respond to you. 
this is the moment that I want to pray for you. If there's anyone here at all and you're saying, Donnell, man, I, I want to know Jesus and I want relationship with him and I feel him drawing me to him in this moment, would you just hold your hand up so I know to pray for you? Anyone at all? Lord, I thank you for the little one who raised her hand. Fill her with your spirit. Let her know you. Save her. Are there those here who I've begun a relationship with God, but I realize, ah, I don't give thanks in everything. Some things. These things, but not those things. I might need to repent of a little angst toward God, giving the enemy permission and failing to see the privilege if that's you, raise your hand. Yeah, a number of us. Lord, I pray for this great church and the privilege that you've given us individually, the privilege you've given this church of sharing in your trials that we might know the joy. Peter once, after Pentecost, they were preaching the gospel and they were treated pretty harshly about it. Even physically, they experienced pain, and they came back rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer. Now he's on the other side of the equation. I pray that this church, Charlottesville, would live on the other side of that equation so that they can reconcile a divided city through the things that they've suffered, through the ethnic challenges they've walked through, but yet they've reconciled people here under one roof and one family that they can go out and demonstrate by the Spirit of God what it looks like to walk together with God and one another. I pray that blessing on this house. In Jesus' name, amen.